0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Our guest today is Jan Bellens, Global Head of Ernst Young's Banking and Capital Markets Group. In his role, Jan counsels banks in defining their strategies and supports their implementation with investments, acquisitions, and ambitious organic growth initiatives around the world. He has been supporting banks for the last two decades and has worked with clients in over 20 countries. In this interview, we talked about Jan's professional journey and what led him to his current role where he oversees 45,000 people, a few of the trends he's seen from banks across different regions, what the impact of COVID really means for banks, the challenges of managing an organization with 45,000 professionals, and much, much more. And now join me in a fascinating conversation with Jan balance. Well, Jan, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Uh, very, very excited to have you joining us all the way from New York City. Maybe we can start by hearing a bit about your background and how you got to your current role.
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you, Miguel. And yes, thanks for having me on the platform. I actually moved to New York about a year ago. Before that, I spent seven years in Singapore and close to 10 years in Shanghai, China, where I saw a lot of the development in financial services, a lot of the fintech developments as well in Asia. I joined EY about eight years ago. Before that, I was in another management consulting firm. And uh, most of my career has been in banking and in financial services.
0: I like your international background. So, it sounds like you lived in China when China was just getting started, early 2000s. I actually happened to live there at the same time. And, curious to hear your impressions and then did you envision China becoming what it is today?
1: Yes, I think certainly if you were there as well at that time, the dynamics of the market were just very impressive, right? Of course, they have a very, very large customer base. Also, still a relatively young customer base that quickly adopted digital services very well, both in, let's say, the real world as in financial services. So it was a very exciting period to be there. It was there from 2004 onwards, and it was indeed where a lot of the big tech giants and also some of the large fintech players were really on their growth trajectory in a context that was very positive for them. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so why consulting? Because I see a lot of people that join consulting and after two or three years, they go and and do something else. It's obviously a a great training but it sounds like you've definitely stayed for a while and you've done uh, definitely very well. Why did you pursue consulting as a career? Well, Miguel, I probably had the same as many
1: others. I was thinking maybe I'll do this for a while and then do something else, but eventually I... (laughs) I did stay in consulting. And what I mostly appreciated, and I'm sure there's other careers that offer the same opportunities, but what I certainly appreciate was the real diversity of the role. So as you point out, so I worked pretty much half my career in Europe, pretty much working in all the different countries with various great clients, then 15 years in Asia, and again, working across the region with very different institutions, ranging from very large global banks to smaller fintechs in some of the Southeast Asian markets. So the diversity is certainly exciting and it keeps me going.
0: Great. And so tell us a bit about your group at Ernst & Young at EY. How big is it and and what do you focus on?
1: We are a truly international firm. We are active across a whole range of services. Consulting is one of them, but we also have a large tax practice and we also still have a very, very large assurance practice. So we are really offering a broad range of services to financial institutions. I'm responsible for our banking practice, which is about 45,000 professionals across those different businesses. And we're really dealing with some of the largest challenges that... Financial services and banks, in particular are tacking heads on, as you can imagine at the moment, you know also with the pandemic there 's a lot of change happening in the banks. A lot of the work that we are focusing on at the moment is driven and enabled by technology. A lot of the banks have been sitting on legacy platforms, spaghetti systems, and making change happen in those institutions with that type of legacy is a real challenge. And we are well positioned
0: to assist them in that. Yeah, you bring up a point that is quite popular on this podcast, and that is the struggle exactly of big banks that have to deal with their legacy platforms. So in many cases, also the legacy mentalities, while competing with this fast growing fintechs, right? How do you see this trend evolving? Is the digital divide between incumbents and new fint is only going to get wider? Or do you think uh, banks are definitely going to step up their digitization efforts? Uh, it's a very good question, Miguel. And I think many banks,
1: perhaps not all, but I think the majority of the banks have really stepped up their digitization efforts also because they had to. And, and you know, as we've seen with the pandemic response, i think a lot of institutions have really accelerated their programs and have sometimes to their surprise found that it actually you know it's actually possible if you really focus the minds and the energy and the investments so i'm actually quite optimistic on banks to get this right but it still takes a lot of effort because as you point out it's not just legacy systems it's also sometimes a legacy mindset it's also Perhaps talent that's not so attractive to work in a very large bank, but that's more attracted to a fast-growing technology company or fast-growing fintech. So talent is also a big, I think, challenge and, and also opportunity for the banks to really make sure that they can make the change happen. The good thing is they still have very large customer base. And certainly those banks that are on that journey and that can accelerate that journey to give a better customer experience and deliver a better customer proposition, I think will continue to do well.
0: And I guess you're probably the best person to ask this, but some regional banks across the world have been adjusting faster than others. What are some of the main differences that you are seeing across regions, particularly given that you cover the entire globe? Yeah, I think,
1: interestingly enough, Miguel, and I won't go into individual countries here, but I think it would be fair to say that a lot of the emerging markets, if you look at Latin America, if you look at Asia, if you look at some parts of, of Eastern Europe, that they have moved faster in terms of their digitization. Often that had to do with The fact that some of these banks are younger institutions, so perhaps there was a bit less of that spaghetti of legacy systems that they had to deal with, or at least somewhat more modern technology they had in place. But it also had a lot to do with adoption, younger customer bases, and both on the individual side as on the corporate side, just a customer base that is quicker to adopt some of those digital behaviors and digital technologies that the banks are putting in place. And then I think a third component is, in some cases, the regulatory context was also more beneficial to some of that and was a bit more attuned to be quicker in adopting and allowing some of those new technologies to be put in place.
0: Yeah, certainly uh, I can think of Mexico, for example, that they adopted their fintech regulation quite quickly. And that's given at least visibility to the entrepreneurs, to the investors, the ecosystem of what are the rules of the game. I understand that you also work with your clients to help them improve their speed of execution at scale. Can you talk a little bit about this topic? Yes. And I think the way
1: we are coming at this, Miguel, is actually very much in an agile way. I think as you know, quite a lot of banks are aspiring to be technology companies, but oftentimes they're not quite there yet. And so we do help institutions in accelerating that transformation. I think it has a lot to do with, you know, there's, there's many components. One is, I think, the tone from the top is super important. And I think that all divide between business on the one hand and the technology team on the other hand is the first challenge that I think banks need to tackle. That's not how it works. Business executives, frontline executives have to at least understand and really collaborate very, very closely with the technology and with the data folks to make sure that they can put propositions in place much faster than before. There's other key elements that we're helping with. One is, you know, I already mentioned the talent side, which is important. How do you make a bank an attractive place to work for the best talent in technology and data? And we're also showing the way. We're we're working very closely with some clients to really put new customer propositions out there and put them out there fast. Also the world where you can think about putting a new product in for 6 months and then take another 12 months to actually develop it, that's no longer the case. You know, you have to launch digital products much faster, got to bring them to market much faster. And I think that is going to be a key driver, I think, for the acceleration, Miguel, really taking a digital product mindset to financial services products. A lot of the tech companies, a lot of the e-commerce players, a lot of the media companies, They have product cycles that are so much faster than what has traditionally been the case in the bank. And yes, of course, there's some regulatory acceptance that needs to happen. There's a lot of compliance components that need to be put in place. But in the end, I think a financial services product, a bank product, is actually a great digital product because you don't have to deal with physical delivery. So it's a perfect product and service for digital but somehow it's been very static because of the technology components, sometimes because of the technology components. And I think uh, a lot of fintechs have jumped on that and are continuously upgrading their digital product and feature set to bring new features and functionality to their customers at much faster speed.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about the, I guess, the elephant in the room, and that's the COVID crisis that obviously everyone in the world is experiencing. Curious to hear how. It has affected you, your team, but I guess more importantly, how has it affected your clients, right? And what have been some of the learnings?
1: Yes. And well, that's where I think both for our team, for the UI team, and for our clients, of course, this has been a difficult challenge. I have to say, though, that I think a lot of our clients and sometimes we ourselves were very positively surprised by the resilience and a very quick response that we've had towards this terrible health crisis. And I think a lot of the clients I speak to that had to react very, very quickly to a dramatic change in how they work, how they serve their customers, were actually positively surprised and also satisfied with that response. I mean, securing digital access for customers, making sure that your systems keep up and running, making sure that your entire employee base, sometimes of hundreds of thousands of people like some of the banks have, and, and also a at EY with a very large team, that they were able to work from home very, very quickly, securely is great. So overall, I think that response has been good. I think in addition, and that's also, I think, kudos to the bank and to some of the regulatory standards that have been put in place over the last few years, is the banks were well capitalized. They have been continued to support their customers. In this difficult time and they were able to do so. So I think that's where the investments over the last few years from regulators, from our clients, have really paid off because they have been able to continue to play their role as the intermediary and basically been able to support their customers. I think the key challenge now, Miguel, is how will this go forward, right? As you've heard from a lot of the banks when they announced their results is, yes, at the moment we are Cautiously optimistic, but there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think this puts a big strain on the workforce. It puts a big strain also on the customers. And there's still a lot of uncertainty on how this is going to go back to maybe a new normal.
0: What about customer expectations from the banking side, right? Because behaviors are changing a little bit, digital adoption is rising. Do you think this shift? and behavior, these expectations are going to be permanent? And if so, how are banks going to adapt to it? So
1: again, I think I would call on the uncertainty, Miguel, but I do think, as it's clear from the numbers in terms of digital adoption across all customer segments, be it individuals, small and medium-sized enterprises, corporates, has given a dramatic boost to digital adoption. And I think a lot of that will stay, will remain in place. There will always be customer segments, I think that will tend to go back to that human interaction and to branch visits in particular. But I think this has certainly given a boost of serious percentages, and they vary by market to digital adoption and to customers that have gone completely digital. So what this will mean is, of course, that I think a lot of the banks will be reviewing and some have already made announcements on the branch footprint, how that will evolve. And I think one of the outcomes, and that's very much also what we are advising our clients, Miguel, is I do think that even with increased digital adoption, human-centered design and the human component will remain super important. And that's also how we look at this. You know, the relationship managers on the, for lending or for wealth management or for personal banking, they will still, I think, be very valued. I think even after this, pandemic and after this massive increase in digital adoption, I think for certain elements such as advice, I think people will still seek out that human interaction, that human exchange. And I think so it's really important for banks to get that balance right and, of course, to equip everyone with the digital tools to self-service if they seek to, but also to find that human interaction if they want to and to do it efficiently.
0: That makes sense. And to what extent, I know you mentioned the cloud of uncertainty that we have ahead, right? But Jan, what about post-crisis planning? I mean, banks have to be thinking about this. And to what extent are they planning? Maybe are they using a razable marker for their plans?
1: <laughs> That's, uh, you know, the, the banks do have some good technology in place. Well, it's not that they're still completely operating on paper. so. But to be honest, yes, they will have to stay agile. I think certainly the largest banks, but I think banks around the world are watching their credit risks in particular, watching that carefully. I think that's a, a very important component. As I said, overall, I think globally banks are well capitalized but also it can be expected that there will be a strain in terms of increased losses across the world or across certain geographies. So that's definitely something where I think the banks are updating their perspectives, their scenarios very, very regularly. Regulators have also stepped in to make sure that the banks do that. I think the biggest challenge, Miguel, and that's something where a lot of the banks are struggling and the sector as a whole, frankly, is struggling is, in a low-rate environment and in a continued low-rate environment, also in a period of uncertainty where you know, we still may have to deal with an uncertain amount of credit losses that are coming down the pipeline, where is the growth going to come from? And I think that's really what's depressing a lot of the share prices of banks across the world. As you know, the valuations of banks, particularly in Europe, but even in the US, it's not great. <laughs> that would be an understatement. You know The entire European banking sector, for example, is trading at uh, 0.5 times book, which means that I think the markets and, and investors at the moment, I think, don't really see a growth story yet. And I think that's really going to be a challenge. I think banks will continue to improve their digital footprints. They will continue to cut costs. They will continue to be more efficient. One question is, where are they going to grow?
0: By the way, full disclosure, I work are two large banks for many years, so nothing against banks. Love my experience. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. (laughs) But um, let's talk a bit about, you mentioned investors in the market is kind of holding their breath to see where growth is going to come from. I guess a lot of this is going to be determined by trends that banks are going to seize on. What are some of the major trends in the banking space that you are seeing and that your clients are paying attention to? I
1: think I would highlight one or two trends here, Miguel. I think one trend is really how banking and financial services gets more integrated in other propositions or is not a destination in itself and I think some have coined the term invisible banking, and that 's I think going back to that question on where is growth going to come from, I think that 's really you know an opportunity for banks to play in it 's not just the banks but it's really that, that move towards a full ecosystem and also seeing financial services for what it really is. Financial services are supporting your life, are intermediating and bringing a financial product for you that will help you in achieving your life goals. It is not typically a destination in itself. When people go for a mortgage, they are not saying, I'm going to buy a mortgage. They say I'm going to buy an apartment or I'm going to buy a house, and I think you know executing on that proposition I think will be a key trend, and that's not just the case in consumer. We see that across corporate, etc. Where I think it is more and more important to see how financial services can support different propositions rather than being propositions in itself. We see the same in mobility, for example. If if we move into a world where you have car sharing services or even self-driving car sharing services, that mobility concept can and should be supported by financial services in terms of financing for the car, in terms of paying with the car, in terms of insuring that car, and so forth, and so forth. So I think that's really an important opportunity. And it's not just actually reshifting some of those products to these ecosystems but it creates a whole range of new services and products that at the moment don't exist or don't get to the customer. And I think that's a potential growth opportunity. The second one that I want to mention, Miguel, because it's super important to UI and it's also super important to our clients, is sustainability. And ESG in particular, not just the climate component, but also the social component. And I think that is very, very important. And it's more than... I think I've seen very, very positive momentum over the last 6 to 12 months also on that topic. And we're getting a lot of requests from clients to assist them with that. And certainly not on their corporate and social responsibility, which is important, but also is how can we help our customers? How can we help our clients? How can we help our investors to actually you know, help on those ESG objectives?
0: Yeah, definitely uh, a big topic across the board, the topic of sustainability and ESG. I like also your first point of invisible banking because it also, I guess, speaks to the partnerships between emerging fintechs and incumbents, which they're pretty robust. There are partnerships that we see every week come up, and a lot of them make sense. Maybe some are not going to last, but others. You can see the value. Is this something that your clients approach you about?
1: Absolutely, Miguel. And that's, I think that will continue. And of course, it is important, you know, as sometimes certain topics, when they take off, they get hype. And sometimes there's a bit of too much excitement in the space. But I think that is definitely something that will continue that is important for, to your point, those partnerships are super important. I think it's important also, and of course the banks have seen this since the crisis, it's important to make sure that regulatory standards, compliance standards, and risk standards are well respected. And that's not always technology companies or some of the partners do not have that experience and are sometimes coming from a bit of a different perspective because they see it brings benefits to the customer and have not gone through a cycle where things haven't gone the way they were supposed to go. So I think we do get a lot of requests in that space either to help build some of these some of these offerings and partnerships, but also oftentimes how do we assure regulatory protection, compliance, and making sure that this goes well. You no, know, a hot space at the moment, as you can imagine, is buy now, pay later offerings. So which from a customer perspective are excellent and they are important and I think they are great. You know, Yes, of course, You know, with every interaction I have where I buy something, if I can have a real-time offer that says, hey, do you want to pay this in installments? I think that is an attractive proposition and certainly if the customer experience is good and it's a real-time execution and so forth, of course, that is attractive. At the same time, you have to make sure that from a risk perspective, compliance perspective, that doesn't get out of hand.
0: So, Jan, I got to say, we've had on the show unicorn founders, and they manage, I don't know, hundreds of team members, or we've had some that manage thousands. I don't think we've had someone who oversees 45,000 professionals. What is your approach to managing a well-oiled machine and, and ensuring that your team is productive?
1: As you can imagine, Miguel, it's impossible to... My main role is really to make sure that I keep those 45,000 people motivated and, in particular, client-focused. I think for us, everything is around our clients, our accounts. And most of my messaging towards our people working in the banking and capital markets community is focus on those clients. If we do right for the client, we will do right for ourselves and for EY. Everything for us revolves around the client. So I am sharing a lot about my client conversations. We make sure that from an organizational perspective, we have a very strong go-to-market focus with the client at the center. So for me, that's the way to go. I'm That's the trick, I guess. <laughs> it's not a real trick.
0: <laughs> no, fascinating. Fascinating. Well, yeah, and before we go, we love to ask all of our guests to hear maybe a little bit about their hobbies. And, you know, maybe you can tell us how you spend some of your time outside of EY.
1: There, Miguel, um, well, I'm still suffering a bit from that at the moment because I recently broke my shoulder with my favorite hobby, which is uh, mountain biking. <laughs> and uh, I, I upgraded uh, recently to an electric mountain bike which gives a lot more range and a lot more speed as well, potentially. And so that tripped me up in one of my trips in uh, in the hills and uh, had to be rescued by the fire brigade because I was in a pretty remote area. But yes, biking and mountain biking in particular is my favorite hobby.
0: Wow, that is intense, but uh, I like it. <laughs> 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 I, I hope you recover, yeah, Uh but... Listen, thank you again for joining us. Uh, You're definitely now a friend of the podcast, a friend of Wharton. Um, Once everything is back to some level of normality, we would love to host you on campus, either me or future generations. And again, thank you for educating us on everything you're doing.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Miguel. This is a great, great platform, and yeah, I don't hesitate to reach out if you want to get uh, if you want to get in touch. Thanks very much for
0: having me on this platform. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Warton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.